and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week we're talking bees with Honey Sommelier and bee champion Sarah Wyndham Lewis. We don't understand how interrelated everything in nature is. We always seem to see things as, as we do, living more or less in isolation. Uh, and in fact, there is this bee that is dependent on this snail, which is dependent on that calcium, which is dependent on that chalk. And so it goes on. Her book, The Wild Bee Handbook, is a fascinating insight into the world of the 25,000 bee species, which go almost unnoticed in our fascination with their honey-making cousins. Their role in the protection of the planet is mighty, and we all need to know much more about them and what we can do to protect them against the risk of extinction. I joined Sarah at her idyllic former strawberry farm in Essex, that she shares with a glorious chorus of birds. To ask her first, what is a honey sommelier? A honey sommelier is concerned with the veracity of honey, with the quality of honey. So it's just like wine or olive oil. Um, I'm concerned with how it how it came into being, what the what the terroir was like, because honey is only a product of the soil and the climate, as as with wine and olive oil. So I trained in Italy with a body of people whose job really is to uh, endorse the you know the special things like PDOs and stuff. So if a bee farmer turns up and says, "I think my honey's chestnut," um, these things are best established by the human palate. So they do this very specialist, refined uh, te- sort of you know, teaching and, and you take it away and you do with it what you will. Now, what I do is I, I teach uh, people in the hospitality industry, so particularly chefs and bartenders, how to buy real honey, how to understand real honey, how to, to, how to dig around and find the depths of it, to look at the differences in colour. Because, of course, what's on our supermarket shelves is a construct. It's made by food scientists in factories anything that says blend on the back of the jar is something you should just put down straight away um, you know there's thousands of wonderful authentic honeys out there uh, it, it's such an exciting world to explore and getting to, to work with people with very fine palettes for me is 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 sh- terrific you know they're they're finding stuff i haven't even found in it and your work at bermondsey street bees for years was all about really getting us to understand just that the difference understanding honey really makes to to the planet that was a really important part of your life but actually urban beekeeping which kind of came out of that because you got a lot of press I remember we first met at Delicious magazine when I was there and you know you 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 really did get that message out to these urban beekeepers that's now something that you do not encourage tell us why um, things have changed so much. I think at the, back, at the time that we started as urban beekeepers, uh, we've always had country hives as well, by the way. So we, you know, we, we live with a foot in both camps. There really weren't a lot of hives in London. There was a, quite a lot of forage available. But right from the very beginning, and I don't think many people were aware of this, we were also working at, with the idea that we would plant. We would always plant alongside our hives to minimise our honeybees' impact on the environment. So we're very aware aware of other wild pollinators so then we hit that point in 2006 or so when the americans were losing so many of their hives and we we really did all of us believe that actually the honeybee was in danger of becoming an uh, an endangered species of going extinct not the case in fact uh particularly what happened in london which is a microcosm of elsewhere is people piled in thinking that they were going to save the planet by by getting bees now half of these people knew nothing about bees 
They hadn't trained, they didn't know it would be disease if it bit them in the ankle, and they have become a real problem. So in London, we have, by a factor of three, the highest honeybee population of anywhere in Europe from which you can then extrapolate in the world. Uh, and that's in a city with constant loss of forage resources. So not only are the honeybees impacting on one another very adversely, we've had huge outbreaks of bee disease caused by too much proximity and weakened immune systems but the effect on the wild bees has been disastrous as well so we have gradually been pulling out of having our honeybees in the city uh, we've moved the, those uh, inner city ones out to the wild as far extent of docklands where they produce amazing honey on rewilded land naturally rewilded land and and so that's that's been a, a really big move for us uh, and we've also been we've never run our hives for honey honey has never been a primary objective or income. Our, our bees are, are always supported for their own sake. Uh, so therefore, we don't have thousands of hives. I think at the moment we have 85, which makes us a little, you know, tiny little tag on the, on nothingness in terms of, of commercial bee farmers. But the point is that those, those bees are situated in groups of five or ten or whatever in land where they are not going to be making a negative environmental impact um, and the other wild pollinators are not going to be thrown out of whack by having this great swathe. I always say honeybees are like a mille hoover because they eat everything. And of course, if you're a little ivy bee and all you eat is ivy and the honeybee gang's been through, you're a bit stuffed because you can't complete your life cycle. So I said, you know, those wild bees have engaged my interest more and more because I don't beekeep myself because I'm very allergic to bee stings. Uh, I've had the freedom to, to, to develop my career as a honey sommelier and on the other half to talk about planting and re you know, reinvigorating the land on which we are putting our honeybees. Which is why I wanted to talk to you today, because there are far more people listening to this podcast who would do that, who would regenerate their gardens, who would think bee and wild bees uh, in particular, and really rethink their relationship to bees, than there are people who are perhaps going to keep bees themselves. You've mentioned wild bees. The name of your book is The Wild Bee Handbook. Tell us what is wild about bees. What should we understand about be wild bees? So we would imagine that every bee is wild. Yeah, I know. We sort of have to start with the numbers, really, because they're just extraordinary. I mean, they bend people out of shape just listening to these numbers. So there's 25,000 species of bee on this planet, of which seven, and that's not 7,000, that's seven are honeybees. And then you have 250 species of bumblebee, which is probably the first bee that people would think of if asked to think of a truly wild bee. There's only 250 species of them worldwide. There's 500 species of tropical stingless bee. And they do produce tiny amounts of honey. So they're another bee that humans muck about with. But then you've got in excess of 24,000 wild species, which because their lives are so, so invisible, or quite often to us, because humans can't make money out of them, are just overlooked. But they are the engine which drives biodiversity on this planet. And we need to be looking at their welfare very specifically if we want to continue uh, to eat widely and well, and if we want other creatures on Earth to benefit from their pollination. Because it's, oh, it's always about us, isn't it? Isn't everything always about humans? The reality is actually without that incredible raft underneath us of millions of food chains, uh, which the 
wild bees are right at the heart. We're all stuffed, <laughs> a whole lot of us. <laughs> Well, we are. And you do in your first food moment, you are talking about the impact of wild bees on biodiversity. I mean, obviously, we know that pollinators are hugely important to the protection of the planet. Can you really break down in very simple ways why we all need to garden differently? Garden in the first place. And that means having some some flowers on your balcony or, or you know, just a wrap little pots outside your front door or whatever. We must have something for the bees to be able to nourish themselves. I think, Jilly, it's come down to that's all we can do. You know, we're so powerless in the face of the giant food industry and the increasing processing of food. And all of those are having a very depressive impact on biodiversity. I can't remember how many types of wheat it is we have now that we live on, but it's, you know, it was thousands, then it became hundreds, and we're now in the tens. These things are lost forever. You know, not, not all of them can be restored by people groovily growing old grains. So, uh, uh, those those elemental forms of biodiversity are so essential to us. So the one thing that we can do, not get bees, not muck about, and, and as I think you probably know, having read my book, I'm very anti-people having these bee houses and stuff because actually they don't help. Uh, and if you're going to do a wildflower meadow, you have to understand what you're actually doing. You have to, to really learn a lot. You can't just sprinkle packets of wildflowers. But we can plant the trees, the bushes, the herbs, perennials which bees of all sorts have evolved with over 88 million years that's how long they've been on earth so those are the things we have within our power to do even as as for years and years and years as you know I gardened on terraces in London and and for me one of the great joys was actually seeing different species of bee coming along and feeding and thinking oh wow I did that I planted that so at a very very profound level I've, I find that hugely empowering because I'm not a natural gardener but all my family huge gardeners farmers whatever and I spent my life not gardening up until my 20s or so because I just thought it was boring it's like my mother saying oh can you go and pick up weeds out of the kitchen garden I think no I'd really really rather not so um, it's come to me in, a, in this great wave of wanting to wanting to garden because I can see the end effect of it and yeah I mean there are certain ways of planting uh, which I talk about in the book in, in terms of clumping and the species you choose all of those things are essential but they're they're not difficult for beginners I think gardening particularly around gardening for food which I'm very keen on doing is often rather cliquey and it feels very exclusive and it feels hard to take the baby steps because failures await you and I think that was that was one of my huge lessons was you fail nobody cares you just it doesn't matter try again do something else grow them somewhere else grow something different and and that's that really sort of let me free once I got rid of the angst around gardening and and I hope in both my books you know the first one planting for honeybees and this one that people will just think hey I can do that and I've never grown anything before. I am so with you that I am so not a gardener. Anything I actively try and grow will get eaten by rabbits or it will just die or, you know, the butterflies will get it. Fine, fine by me, you know, just have it. Um, but I have wildflower meadows and you are very down on, on too many people talking about rewilding in this kind of, as you say, a sort of uninformed way. You know, when Isabella Tree's book came out, wilding, everybody 
really wanted to do that. Actually, it's really hard to do that. I mean, we're very lucky where I am because we have deer crossing our meadows. They're not my deer. I didn't bring them in. They just break down our fences and come and tramp our land. And that's the point, isn't it? It's not about just throwing wildflowers out. It's actually about getting them into the soil. Tell us about the conditions in your second food moment that uh, is is really important for uh, proper wildflowers to grow and support the pollinators. I think everybody um, gets very, very uh, hung up on garden, you know, sort of sprinkling wild wildflower seeds. And the trouble is that there's two real faulty issues here. One is that wildflowers do not like the rich garden soils that we cultivate in our gardens. And the other is that they're specifically very local. Uh, and so if you plant a packet of seeds that came from Wales in Sussex, they're not really the right flowers for Sussex. So we need to, if you're going to do a rewilding thing, it's a whole cycle that does start indeed with the hooved animals uh, and goes right down to the smallest microbes in the soil. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's, an, that's a degree level in, in, in soil management, apart from anything else. Um, so uh, for me, I have seen Jilly so much wasted money being put into particularly urban wildflower meadows the council's ticking green boxes so madly that their hands are going to fall off but they're not actually understanding the ecology behind it so whilst i'm saying to people look if you want to grow some wildflowers a little patch of wildflowers fabulous we all need to do that um but it's just this thing of the wildflower meadow is best left to professionals because it is part of a wider agrarian land management uh situation and and it's it is it needs a lot of study to get it right um but there are a lot of things that i've planted in my garden which are fundamentally wild things so we're talking about foxgloves we're talking about campanulas we're talking about wild oregano all sorts of lovely lovely things that will grow wonderfully in a in a cultivated space uh you just need to check that what you're buying is actually specifically bee friendly when you get all excited for that catalogue as we all do you think oh I'll have that and that and that a little bit of checking online just to check that you've got the right if it is a cultivar rather than a native species an actual species just check because there's endless resources to help you do that Uh, and then plant away but plant in clumps you know one here and one there and stuff we we need to uh, it's very difficult for a lot of bees to forage in that wild uh, wildflower setup because the, the flowers are very widely spaced so honeybees and a lot of bumblebees and some of the wild bees are are not given to getting lots of different pollen and nectar on a single foraging trip they will tend to just go and get one thing so they wake up and they go oh today is wild geranium day that's what we're feeding on so you plant things that naturally clump that's a terrific way forward for the for the beginner gardener trying to sort of you know bring some wild into the garden and things like wild geranium are an absolute dead cert uh, and and then take it from there just just learn see what's working i mean i i'm in the process of such a massive conversion here in this garden and every time i go out and i think wow i didn't quite mean that to happen but nature has her ways doesn't she you mentioned 60 harvests left and we've had philip limbury on the show uh talking about his book 60 harvests left it is so important isn't it to really understand the problem with the soil and how bees and pollinators really impact positively on the health of our soil can you tell us a little bit about that 
Well, it, you know, it starts with, again, with a big food production and the endless, endless tilling of soil and the sucking the life out of it such that, you know, I mean, we, I find it impossible to avoid buying some foods which have been produced by mass farming. I think it's very hard for anyone to do that. But you have to know that with them comes a chemical load because they're trying to replace, uh, replenish the soil artificially. Uh, they're also damaging the, the, the soil flora and fauna, the tiny microbes really really cataclysmically so hence we get to this thing of 60 harvests because in our race to provide tons and tons and tons of cheap uniform food uh, we have just sucked this planet dry so I think that those these twin movements of um, of regenerative agriculture and the smaller version of it in our own gardens is absolutely vital and at the root of doing it as a as a gardener I think the the only way forward is no dig, which is hooray. You know, you give up digging, whoopee. What is not to love about that? Um, and it, it does require, you know, to learn about mulches and to generate quite a lot of green waste and stuff. But um, it, it, you don't have to have a closed system. Ideally, we've got four acres. We'll be able to get to the point where we're generating all our own organic waste and that will mulch. Uh, absolutely fine for, for, for our purposes. Uh, but in smaller gardens, you're buying it in. So what? You're buying some wonderful, wonderful organic mulches. And, and putting them on top of your beds, the worms will, you know, put out the flags. They'll be carrying all that nutrition down into the soil. What you haven't done is you haven't disturbed the microbes. So the plants that are then put into that are going to be healthier plants. And I really, honestly, am seeing this in my year year two of planting in this garden. I go out and I think, boy, oh boy, this is like these these plants have been on some sort of super plant drug they are so happy in this undisturbed soil um, but we inherited a soil with almost no worms in it as well so that was pretty signal that we had to really do something to get some nutrition back in it but i think that um what's what i find so fascinating julie is the fact that our gut biome has been shown to be almost identical to a healthy soil biome and that for me that's that story done that's the beginning middle and end of it isn't it if you are what you eat literally you are what you absolutely. eat absolutely and and human life as you say is wholly dependent on insects as well so when we're talking about the relationship between gut between the, and and the soil we absolutely it makes sense to talk about our, our dependence on insects as well and then we just look at life in a completely different way don't we We're, it's all connected to just break that down why we are so completely dependent and that awful statistic that is, is it something like three weeks without bees and that's the end of the planet just break that down for us I think it's, I think, you know, rather like the 60 harvest, it's one of those really big media headlines that's designed to shock people. The trouble is with the, with the public, they will immediately go into must get more honeybee mode, which is actually destructive to the ecosystem. So, um, I, I, I prefer to sort of think about it in terms of the gradual breakdown. Uh, for us, for a start, let's look at wasps. Everyone hates wasps. There are thousands and thousands of wasps doing the most amazing jobs, eating things that would overwhelm Overwhelm our crops uh, and there are all sorts of beetles who are digging and delving and doing wonderful things uh, I, I mean it, I, I think I said to you there was a man in Singapore when we went to, to, to look at beekeeping there which is very tricky because they are totally insect phobic he said and he meant it if I saw a bee in my flat I'd call the police so 
<laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who routinely squash everything and they, they're not giving it a moment's thought. Um, so I'm, I'm very pro the idea that maybe children should have a better, a better learning experience in school about how vital insects of every sort are. And we would also, there's a wonderful thing from Natural History Museum, I can't exactly remember the figures, but we would basically be head high in rubbish in about a year we wouldn't be able to move because of all of the breaking down that insects do in their normal course of events in their normal life cycles that's my dogs yeah very excitable they are this morning um so yes it's in the point i think and why it's so easy to neglect them is unless they're directly in our field of vision in which case we're saying oh do, do i want this in my life um they are invisible their work is invisible and the same is true of the wild bees um they just get on with their lives and and we're we're so um we're so moment to moment as humans aren't we our concentration span is about that of a gnat uh, and if if something sort of wiggly or flyy and it's in our face uh, you know our response is oh i hate you <laughs> And that we've really got to change. Children have this natural interest in bugs. Let's try and keep that so that they don't, you know, experience this revulsion that so many adults have for anything that, that is winged or crawly or whatever. Uh, and I think education at, an, at a higher level, you know, for people to understand. So more books. Let's all read more books. Let's learn more about that lovely beetle that's sitting on the wall and say, what do you do, beetle? What, what, what's your role in this huge, huge, huge huge interconnected world that is invisibly supporting human life and are we grateful for them no <laughs> and we need to learn to be grateful <laughs> and, and that's your third food moment and and that's what you do in the wild bee handbook you give us a breakdown of just some of the thousands of types of bees beautiful stories about all these bees i had no idea you mentioned the ivy bee before tell us about some of the other bees that you have in your fourth food moment I think one of my absolute favourite is the bicoloured mason bee because uh, that, that bee has the most incredible alliance with snail shells. They nest in empty snail shells. So if you're gardening and you've got an empty snail shell, chuck it at the back of the bed. Uh, and if you're on a chalk soil, because we don't have a lot of snails if you're not on a chalk soil because they need the chalk to build their, to build their um, shells... Uh, and you never know. So the female will lay her eggs inside it. Males will shelter in there when they're, when they're hatched out of their nest. And, and the, the, the female will find her snail shell. She'll turn it over and over. She'll assess whether it's the right thing. If she lays some eggs in there, she'll probably sort of get some leaf litter around. But then she will fly around and she will correct, create this wonderful little igloo to disguise this wondrous snail shell full of her offspring you think these lives are so impossibly complex and again we don't understand how interrelated everything in nature is we always seem to see things as as we do living more or less in isolation uh, and in fact there is this bee that is dependent on this snail which is dependent on that calcium which is dependent on that chalk and so it goes on so that's what that's for me i mean i i you know my background is as a writer as a journalist so i'm always asking why i'm like that really tiresome time like why and and this was the most wonderful journey and and i feel like the i, I hope julie that i wrote stories that you could read out loud to a child you know to engage them in the life of this and then the next thing they'd want to do would be say where do we find how can we go and see these bees and just just have that curiosity sparked in both the adult and and in in the child uh, because it is all of this sort of you know the the love of gardening 
is something that when it hits you, it, it really hits you hard, doesn't it? But I think the seeds are sown, as mine were in childhood, definitely, definitely, following my grandfather around the garden, watching him hold bumblebees in his hand and just, just give them a little drink of sugar water and get them back on the wing. Um, so the other thing, of course, I mean, what's not to love about bumbles? You know, they're, they're just teddy bears on wings and they're nested they, we've got more bumbles on here than we have actually got wild bee species that i've i've identified from the sort of uh, solitary bee group uh, and the bumbles are like this mad parade of buzzy helicopters at this time of year because the queens are all out looking for pollen to get their ovaries started so that they can lay eggs and also uh, looking for nest sites and and they're looking under the shed and they're looking under the nettles and they're looking in the sunny bank and stuff and there they all are and you know you can't miss them they the other ones some a lot of bees you 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 wouldn't know quite what they are bumble is a bumble and and they're just heaven they really are and and they're so placid you know where again all this fear that we have inside us if you just sit quietly that no bee is ever going to trouble you even honeybees as my husband the beekeeper says no bee ever left the hive thinking let's go and bother a human being (laughs) they just get on with it and also the other joy for me is seeing all the different species foraging together so back to that ivy at the end of the year it's the last resource that the bees have that will really help them go through winter so the ones that are going to overwinter really need it and so they will be just sitting you know happily next to each other with a immense hornet in the middle and you've got some honeybees and you've got some bumbles and you've got some sort the solitary ivy bees that that sort of collegiate nature of bee foraging again i think most people don't understand that they share and and of course you've moved now from london to essex to an old strawberry farm do you see more of the bees the wild bees now that you're out in in the wilds um I do and I don't because really until we we inherited a garden that had been in inverted commas rewilded and and actually there's far less life in it than I'd like to see so that's what I'm working hard to build but yes we do because if we go down to the sea and there's all sorts of wildflowers there things like chicory and stuff and there are glorious bee species and also this thing of when you start to look at things in the small things in life you see more than you ever thought and that's been a real joy because in London I'd have to sort of I'd go and walk the dogs every lunchtime and go and keep an eye because I had a lot of community plantings around where we live to offset the effect of the bees on our roof uh, so the, the dogs and I would go and have a look and say okay there's this there's that so there's definitely there's more in the wider environment here for sure uh, there's not as much variety as I'd like to have on my own home patch so that's my mission is to plant some of the more specialist things that are in the book you know that tell you this is how to attract this particular species and I'm, I'm going to give that some shots as well uh, and see see if I can just ump up the the head count of these species and also there's butterflies to take into account there's masses of other pollinators on which we depend uh, so hopefully I can do a sort of blanket job and make everybody happy <laughs> It's getting warmer now. Um, what can we actively do? You say you're doing a lot of work to bring the, the soil health back through making uh, it, habitats for, for the, the pollinators. What can we all do? One of your top lists, on the top of your list, it says bushes and trees. What should we be doing with our bushes and trees? Bushes and trees are absolutely fantastic and, and hedgerows are really fantastic. We've lost so many from the environment. So I'm taking out our fences and I'm replacing them with native fruiting hedges, spiky ones to keep the deer out when 
when they get a little bit larger. Um, but uh, I was once uh, training somebody, a bartender, and, and I was explaining about hedgerows and bushes and trees and how they are habitats for thousands and thousands of creatures, way beyond the pollinators, right into the lichens and all sorts of other essential things. And, and he said, he said, so if I understand this right... Uh, a hedgerow is a bit like the land equivalent of a coral reef. And I said, oh, that's so brilliant. I'm going to use that in the book, can I? And he said, of course you can. And it, for me, that immediately puts it in perspective because the creatures that live in, the creatures that live under, the creatures that feed on it, the creatures that are just having this horrible thing that's nest and rest. It's, but it is very true. You know, little birds need somewhere actually to, to keep safe in. They may not nest there, but they spend a lot of their time in thickets of trees so um also bees evolved alongside trees uh, from very very earliest days so if you're if you're taking off your sort of professional gardening hat and just being a bit beginner stages you can say a bush is a small tree and a herbaceous perennial is a small bush so if you can actually plant those core three things, if you've got space, if you're lucky enough, then that's wonderful. Uh, and what lots of us can do is just to plant lots of herbs, uh, which falls into that herbaceous perennial. It feeds masses and masses of pollinators. Though, the only thing is you've got to let them flower. And I promise you, Julie, it took me about two years to work that out because my mum was always pinching the tops off herbs to stop them flowering so that they were available for the kitchen for longer. So I fell to, when I... When that I worked that out, I fell to having um, half and half. And so half I would pinch the tops off, half I would let flower. Now I just let them flower and I plant some more or, or seed some more a little later in the season. And I, I'm using those. You, if you can relax into gardening and you don't have to sort of follow these laws and buy these products, you just let gardening take you away and you do what you want in your own space and you don't have to explain it to anybody. Uh, and I think that, 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 again, that brings you closer to nature because you can have a happy half hour out there and then you'll see things that you never knew you were going to see uh, and that for me has been the greatest joy of the move thanks for listening do follow me on instagram i'm at future listener and on substack where you'll find a little extra bites from my guests each week including some lovely recipes from sarah and i'll see you next week